Hey guys and welcome to Mysteries and Histories with me, your host, Georgia Marie. This podcast audio is adapted from my YouTube channel. I wanted to make my content more accessible for those of you on the go and we all love a podcast. So if I ever reference anything on screen or a photograph, please bear in mind this audio was originally made for video. It won't hinder your listening experience at all, but just to save any confusion. And if you do want to go and subscribe to my channel, I'm just Georgia Marie over on YouTube. And with that, let's get into it. Hey guys, and welcome back. Or if you're new here, hi, hello, my name's Georgia. And on my platforms here on the internet, I mostly cover unsolved true crime. And in the world of unsolved true crime, you also often have big case updates. And that is what this episode is going to be today. Some big things have happened in cases I've covered in the past. I'm going to make sure that we're all up to date with the latest news. Today, I have a wide range of updates for you in a number of cases I've covered in the past. If you're new here and this is your first time tuning in to one of these episodes, this is one of my sort of many attempts, I suppose, to keep the world of true crime online a little bit more ethical. I believe that all too often people watch a video about a case or listen to a podcast episode and then just sort of like breeze past it, they move on, they never think about it again, it's just entertainment in the moment. Of course it is all a minefield and there's always going to be ethical questions to take into consideration when we're talking about true crime, but you've just got to do what you can, when you can, to make things a little bit better. Be an ethical consumer, spread the word where you can, sign petitions and keep up to date with cases. Don't just forget and move on because you know the victim's loved ones can never do that. There is so much power in just sharing the stories of unsolved true crime. So many cases have been solved through just word of mouth, the right person hearing the right thing. I do believe it's not unethical to talk about unsolved true crime, but you've also got things you can do within that to make it a little bit better. So these case update episodes keep me accountable to make sure that I don't just cover a case and then move on and forget about it, and you as viewers as well. None of this is meant to sound preachy, it's just something I believe in really strongly, but I know all of us here on my channel, my platforms here on the internet, we're all on the same page, we're all in this with the same purpose. The first case I want to give an update on is that of Alicia Navarro, who against all odds was found alive almost four years after she left her family home in the middle of the night, aged 14, on September 15th, 2019. She left only a note reading, I ran away, I will be back, I swear, I'm sorry, Alicia. Alicia is autistic and she spent most of her time at home online playing games with strangers and it was just easier for her to connect with people in that way. Now this is something that her mum, Jessica Nunez, always said was likely responsible for her disappearance. Who was Alicia talking to? Jessica has since spent years advocating for online safety for children to ensure that parents are always aware of what exactly their children are getting up to on the internet. Jessica is truly incredible. The amount of awareness that she raised in the aftermath of Alicia's disappearance is just incredible. The strength it takes to try and help other people while struggling through the grief of losing your own child is something I just can't ever imagine having. And then on the 27th of July, 2023, Jessica posted an emotional video on Facebook stating that Alicia had been found safe. She said at the time that she didn't know the details, but she could confirm her daughter was alive. 
She urged others with missing loved ones to use this case as an example that miracles do exist, to never lose hope and to always fight. For everyone who has missing loved ones, I want you to use this case as an example that miracles do exist and never lose hope and always fight. My daughter, Alicia Navarro, was missing since September 15, 2019. She has been found safe. I do not know the details. I do confirm that she is my daughter, she is alive, and she is safe. This is recent news for me. It was an hour before it was posted in social media and the news. I don't have details, but the important thing is that she is alive. And I want to thank the community and God for all that you have done. At the same time, Glendale Police also released a video of detectives speaking to Alicia over a video call, confirming that she was indeed alive. They asked Alicia if anyone had hurt her in any way, to which she replied, no, nobody hurt me. Did anybody hurt you in any way? No, no one hurt me. Okay, because, uh, you know, our goal is, we just want to make sure that you're safe. I, I don't, I don't. Now, investigators actually weren't the one to find Alicia. She turned up alone at the police station of a small Montana town called Haver and she identified herself, something which was very quickly confirmed because she still looked exactly the same. Information officer Jose Santiago said at a news conference held by the Glendale Police Department, which is where Alicia had gone missing from, Alicia, by all accounts, appears to be in good spirits. She really just wants to move on with her life. She is very apologetic to what she's put her mother through and she understands that she has caused a lot of pain to her mother and it was not intentional on her behalf and she is hopeful that they can have a relationship. Good afternoon. My name is Jose Santiago. I'm the media manager here at the Glendale Police Department. Uh, we want to first start off by telling you all thank you for your coverage on this announcement today. It is a major announcement for us here at the Glendale Police Department. Um, I want to start off by saying that there's a lot of mixed emotions with this particular announcement that we're having. We are happy and at the same time we're hopeful that we will be able to supply this family a little bit more closure. With that I would like to tell you that Alicia Navarro has been located. She is by all accounts safe, she is by all accounts healthy, and she is by all accounts happy. It is, this case is far from over. We do have the resolution that we have located Alicia, but there's still a lot of questions that will still need to be answered. There's still a lot of investigating that our, not only our employees have to do, but as well as these other partnering agencies. So once again, we are asking that you all have patience with us. We will supply information as it becomes available. And we also have a message from Alicia herself who is asking for privacy. Um, this has been a traumatic situation for her, as you can imagine, but she is looking to be able to move on in her life. She's looking to build a life for herself and she's asking for some privacy and patience as well. With that, we will open the floor to questions. Right now, we don't know if she's been with anyone for the length of time that she's been missing. Uh, we're still investigating that actively. We can tell you that when she showed up to the police department, she was by herself. She's been by herself each time and she's been cooperative. She was in Montana and turning herself in is a strong statement. She showed up 
to a police department. She identified herself as Alicia Navarro, and she basically asked for help to clear her off of a missing juvenile list. Um, she, by all accounts, went on her own free will. Um, she is not in any kind of trouble. She's not facing any kind of charges. She is not being held anywhere. She is coming and going at her own free will, and she has been extremely cooperative with not only our folks, but the fe our federal partners as well. This case definitely still seems to be a bit of a minefield because Alicia is now 18 years old and she can't be forced to return back to her family in Arizona. It seems that both her and the man that she was found to be living with have slipped through some sort of loophole in the law because she is now an adult. It's been speculated that the only reason Alicia was allowed to come forward and identify herself is because of that fact. It was quickly found that Alicia had been living in Montana with a 36-year-old man called Eddie Davis, who according to LBC had been a night shift worker at a local Walmart, but he was let go a few months earlier after becoming increasingly aggressive. The article details how, according to an ex-colleague, his attitude had changed over the previous couple of years. Colleagues also knew that he did have a young girl living with him for more than a year at this point, but he hid the relationship by passing her off as his niece and saying that she was just too young to be his girlfriend, which just adds a whole other layer because this man, Eddie Davis, was clearly aware that Alicia was too young. Articles stop actually accusing Davis of having something to do with Alicia's disappearance. I couldn't find any actual information about that really, but that would likely be a legal minefield to make such an allegation with no proof. You just can't go online and accuse somebody of abduction when you don't know that as fact. And I would like to make it clear that I am also not making that allegation. For all we know, Alicia maybe met Eddie at a later date, she ran away for some other reason and met him further down the road. All we do know is they were living together when she was identified. In early August, the FBI, armed with assault rifles and bulletproof vests, carried out a raid at the property they'd been living at, with neighbours describing how Alicia apparently hung her head and covered her eyes like she was crying after she was brought out by officers. The same witnesses described how young Alicia looked. They assumed she was underage because she does undeniably look younger than 18 years old. And then officers re-entered the building with evidence kits, but from there, I don't really know if legally they've been able to do much with this case. As far as I'm aware, as of today, Davis has not been arrested. It's not illegal for Alicia, who is of legal age, to have been living with him at this time. I can only assume they've been looking for evidence that he was responsible for her abduction as a 14 year old, but they've not been able to find anything to that effect, hence why he is still free. I have no doubt there is a lot more happening behind the scenes of this case. Everything's sort of gone very quiet about this since around August, so I assume it is just a waiting game now, if there is anything they can do. Reports from the 3rd of August actually state that Alicia and Davis fled together, and as Alicia is, like I said, now 18 and can legally make her own decisions, that is allowed. The Daily Mail reported that they moved in with Davis's mother at a reservation, but since then, like I said, there's not really been any coverage. Jessica has urged people to move on, saying that since Alicia's reappearance, they've been subject to harassment, with people even turning up at theirs and Alicia's homes. Now, I know none of my viewers would ever do such a thing, but just in case it does need saying, don't do that. Just don't do that. 
I felt like I had to report on the fact that Alicia has been found safe and sound and the very public circumstances around her discovery. And it's natural to sort of want answers to want justice in this case, but the family aren't obligated to provide us with any updates here, or they're not obligated to include the public in the rest of this narrative. I have no doubt this has been a really difficult time for all involved and I truly, truly hope that Alicia is safe and happy. Like I've said many times, she is an adult and she is allowed to make her own choices going forward. So we'll leave that there. Back in 2021, I covered the case of Paige Johnson after a request came in from one of her loved ones. And I'm pleased to announce somebody has finally been convicted in her case, although strangely, not on a murder charge. 17-year-old Paige went missing in 2010 from Florence, Kentucky, after asking her mum if she could go and visit her sister in Covington. Paige never arrived, beginning a 10-year search for her. And then, in 2020, her remains were found by a hiker in East Fork State Park, about 20 miles east of Cincinnati. The area had actually been searched already by investigators back in 2010, but for whatever reason, she wasn't found. Due to the state of decomposition so many years on, a cause of death has never been determined for Paige. It's always been believed by close ones and investigators that the last person to see Paige live was Jacob Bumpus, a friend of hers who was meant to drop her at her sister's. Although, of course, he has always denied any involvement, he says that he did drop her in Covington after he picked her up from her mother's house. But eventually, Bumpus was arrested. Not for murder though, because there's not enough information around Paige's cause of death to make any accusations in regards to it being a homicide. Bumpus instead was charged with abuse of a corpse and evidence tampering. Trial finally took place in July of this year, so July 2023, where many witnesses testified that Bumpus was indeed the last person to see Paige alive. Her boyfriend, Ronnie Ryder, said that back in 2010, he asked Bumpus about being the last person to see Paige alive, and he said that yes, he dropped her at 15th and Scott in Covington. Another friend testified the very same thing, so he admitted to being the last person to see her. On one occasion, members of the Johnson family actually turned up at Bumpus's house to ask questions, to which he gave very short answers and closed the door on them, saying that he was going to get a lawyer. At trial, his defence team claimed that he wasn't acting strange, he was just very nervous because the entire family had turned up at his house. However, then a former Covington police officer took the stand and detailed how when the police turned up at his house, they found him trying to sneak out of the back. Investigators did execute a search warrant on Bumpus's home and his vehicle, in which they said they did find hair fibres and spots of blood. And if you recall back to my original video, which I will link in the description, there were always questions around Bumps' story, as his phone pings didn't match up with him dropping Paige off in Covington, as he always claimed. Instead, his phone pinged in Claremont County at the time that he said he dropped her off in Covington. Claremont County is where her body will be found a decade later. After three days of testimony in Paige's trial, on the 31st of July 2023, Jacob Bumpus was found guilty of abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence. His sentencing was scheduled for early September when he was given four years in prison. This sounds like a very small sentence, and that's because it is. But Bumpus has not been found guilty of murder here. This is not a murder charge. 
Paige's family searched for their daughter for a decade, with a further three years on top of that fighting for justice. And then the person accused of abusing her body has been given just four years. I can imagine they're unbelievably frustrated, but once again, this case seems to have fallen into some sort of loophole in the law. You can't convict a person of murder with no evidence of the death being a murder. That's just not how the legal system works. So it seems like here the authorities have done what they could. Articles simply say that Paige died for whatever reason on that car journey to Covington. Instead of contacting the authorities for help, Bumpus just unceremoniously disposed of her body on the side of the road. Why did he feel like he couldn't call for help? Well, that's something that can only be speculated on. Although this isn't exactly the outcome that everyone would have hoped for after all these years in Paige's case, I hope her family can now feel some sort of semblance of peace knowing they have been reunited with her and that somebody has paid a price, however small it is. Another case I covered at the request of a loved one was that of Ernie Ortiz, who was shot and killed in September 2019 in the parking lot of his restaurant El Conquistador in Garden City in Kansas. It was always believed that Ernie had been shot during a robbery after he closed his business for the night, but there was very little movement in the case at the time and it very quickly went cold. But in January of this year, Crime Stoppers offered a $21,500 reward for any information in this case, and for a while now, Ernie's case has been referred to as the Five of Hearts Homicide. Now, this is part of a really quite ingenious initiative across the US for the past few years, in which law enforcement place playing cards with cold case information on in prisons. 52 cold cases in each deck of cards that inmates can play with and read, in the hopes that an inmate who uses the card will recognise information about a case and provide information to a tip line provided. If the information is found to be valid, a reward is offered. This is just a really creative method for generating new interests and leads in a case, and it's specified that this is only an option when the police have turned to and exhausted every other possible avenue. This is for the coldest of cases, when they have nothing left to lose. It looks like the Kansas Department of Corrections started to use these cards themselves around this time last year, and since then, according to KCTV5, they've received 14 credible tips in a wide range of cases, which doesn't sound like loads, like just 14, but it's more than if they hadn't started this initiative. Ernie Ortiz's case became the Five of Hearts. Now, I can't tell you whether or not these cards or the Crime Stoppers reward are responsible for the potential solving of Ernie's murder. Like, that information just isn't available to the public as far as I could find. But I do wonder whether or not it's a coincidence after this being an incredibly cold case, in June 2023, the Garden City Police Department obtained an arrest warrant for first-degree murder and aggravated robbery against 32-year-old Samantha Joe Smith. Three months later, on September 6, 2023, US Marshals found and arrested Smith in Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. She was taken into custody and was eventually extradited back to Kansas, where a bond was set at $250,000. When she asked a judge to lower the bond though, they did, and as a result, she was able to post bond and leave jail. Ernie's niece, Selena Sanchez, said to KSN.com, to find that she was allowed to go out and return to, I guess, her family, that's very upsetting to us because my uncle wasn't given that choice. We are missing out on him not being with us and that hurts us every single day. 
It's really hard because when we experience these different events rising in the case, it's challenging for us. It's frequently a step back for us and it's already been very traumatic for all of us. And when we get these setbacks, when we have these events happen, it's like a re-traumatization. But I have no doubt that justice will prevail for the Ortizes. They've worked so hard for justice in this case. They've been so patient. So now we've just got to hope the justice system is going to do its job and hopefully Smith will face her day in court. Of course, as it stands, it is innocent until proven guilty. She hasn't faced a jury yet. So we're just going to be waiting from here on out. I'll be keeping a very close eye on this and will of course keep you all in the loop going forwards. Our final case before we move on to a lot of news in our doe cases is that of Zeb Quinn, truly one of the wildest cases I've ever spoken about on my channel. And I would have had no idea about an update in this case if one of you guys hadn't commented on that very, very old video of mine. So please do always go back and leave comments if you hear of any updates on any cases that I've covered. It really does help me out immensely and I love seeing you all sort of staying engaged. Zeb Quinn disappeared on January 2nd, 2000 after leaving work at Walmart in Asheville, North Carolina. Zeb had plans to travel to Leicester after work with one of his co-workers, Robert Jason Owens, to buy a new car, with the two deciding to drive there separately. They were seen on surveillance footage at a local gas station at 9.15pm, but shortly after that, things took a very strange turn according to Owens. Zeb signalled for him to pull over, Zeb was apparently very frantic, said he'd received a page that he had to respond to urgently, and he headed off to a payphone. When Zeb returned, he cancelled their plans and sped away after rear-ending Owens' truck. The next afternoon, Zeb's mum reported him as missing and just four days later, his car was found in the car park of a local restaurant, which just so happened to be next to the hospital in which his mum worked. Inside the car was a black Labrador puppy. Zeb did not have a puppy. A pair of lips and exclamation mark drawn on the back windshield and lipstick and a hotel keycard that has never been able to be traced back to a hotel, among many other things. As of 2017, the status of Zeb's case was changed to presumed dead in absentia. From very early on in the investigation, Owens was considered a suspicious person. He was the last person to see Zeb alive and nobody quite believed his story, but nobody could prove anything. But then in 2015, he was arrested in a completely unrelated incident where he murdered Christy Schoen and her husband, JT Codd, along with their unborn child. And for this, he was ordered to spend between 60 and 75 years in prison. In July 2017, a grand jury returned an indictment charging him with first-degree murder in Zeb's case too. But thanks to a very slow justice system and then COVID-19, things have moved incredibly slowly. I suppose his trial has never been a huge priority because he's already in prison. He's not a danger out on the streets. Owens finally had his day in court in July 2022, when in a shock twist plea deal, he admitted to being an accomplice to the murder, but said he didn't commit it himself. And the Buncombe County Superior Court Judge Jacqueline Grant actually accepted this. The defence presented the following story. They said Owens was duped by his very abusive and controlling uncle, Walter Jean Owens, into luring Zeb to Pisgah National Forest by saying they were going to meet a woman who Zeb was completely smitten with, Misty Taylor. But when they arrived, Misty wasn't there. Instead, they came across Jean Owens, who had been hired by Misty's boyfriend to kill Zeb. And he did exactly that. He killed him, dismembered, and burned his body. 
Now, Jean died aged 66 in 2017, so investigators can't exactly talk to him to corroborate this version of events anymore. Although sources very close to the case have confirmed that prior to his death, Jean Owens denied any involvement in Zeb Quinn's murder, instead providing information that implicated his nephew, Jason Owens. As a result of the plea deal, Owens was sentenced to 150 to 189 months, so that's 13 to 16 years, which he is to serve concurrently to the basically life sentence he's already serving. It seems prosecutors agreed to the plea deal, knowing at this point it was very unlikely that they were going to find evidence pointing to the contrary. It was either that, or he gets away scot-free. Assistant District Attorney Jeremy Ingle said, Based on the evidence available, the lack of evidence of motive, cause of death, spoilation of evidence based on a decades-long pause in critical leads in the case, a conviction of first-degree murder at trial, though never a certainty, would present a steel challenge considering all these factors. They simply just didn't think they would find the evidence to charge him with murder, so a plea deal was the next best thing. So perhaps full justice will never be served in this case. It is, for all intents and purposes, now solved. But I think it does pose a very interesting question. Is somebody already being in prison for life for another crime enough justice for other crimes? If you know somebody is responsible for something, is it enough to know they're just off the streets, unable to harm anyone else? Or do you need a jury to find them guilty? I sort of understand the human justice in wanting the latter, but I suppose sometimes you've got to take peace in just knowing they're off the streets and they're never going to harm anyone else. Is it enough to know in your heart the truth? Or at least I should say what you perceive to be the truth. And with that, we move on to the Doe portion of today's episode, where I have five Jane Does to update you on. We have two identifications thanks to genetic genealogy, and then some just more information in a further three. As we probably all know by this point, Doe identification is possibly the thing I feel most strongly about in the world of true crime. I don't believe anyone should be lost to history without their name, so it does always warm my heart when I can tell you more about these cases. Starting with the Broadway Street Phoenix Jane Doe, whose identity was announced by the DNA Doe Project on September 12th as Amelia Munoz Loera. Amelia was struck by a car in a hit and run in November 2004 at the intersection of 15th Street and Broadway in Phoenix, Arizona. Investigators found no clue as to her identity at the scene of the crime, and so the case very quickly went cold. But around 2020, the Phoenix police brought her DNA to the DNA Doe Project in the hopes that genetic genealogy could do its thing, and it did. According to DNA Doe Project, the process of extracting the DNA was pretty straightforward, but Amelia's family tree proved very, very difficult to untangle once they'd got some matches. Turns out that her relatives came from the Aguas Calientes region of Mexico, which is apparently a community that historically has a lot of intermarriage between related families over many, many generations. This is something called endogamy, meaning the custom of marrying only within the limits of a local community, clan or tribe. And this can make it difficult for obvious reasons to determine relationships based on genetics, because even distant relatives seem closer in the family tree because they share more DNA. We're not really talking about direct incest here, but it's just all these different families have all married into each other over the years and generations pass and they marry again and it just gets very complicated. 
The update about this from DNA Doe Project also notes that the name change of a very close relative of Amelia's also further complicated things. Investigative genetic genealogist Lisa Ivan said, This was one of the most challenging cases of endogamy imaginable. Our closest matches shared two close relationship paths with our doe. One of those paths led to a New Yorker who served in the American Revolutionary War, which was quite a surprise in a case with deep Mexican roots. I really wish I had more information about that because that sounds fascinating, but that's all I have. In the end, the DDP team dedicated more than 1,300 man-hours to this case without any resolution, and in the end, it wasn't their direct work that solved it. Amelia's niece did a test, uploaded her DNA to Family Tree DNA in an effort to locate her aunt, and it worked. Cases involving immigrants and minority populations are proving so much more difficult to solve through genetic genealogy because fewer relatives have uploaded their DNA to databases. I mean, in some countries, it's simply not financially viable to do it. In some, the word just hasn't spread. There are so many things that play into this. I could go into my usual diatribe about systemic racism and class systems contributing to things like this, but you've all heard it from me a million times before. Basically, this means that in a generalization, which is a very important word here, generalization, having the ability to conduct DNA tests and upload them to sites like GEDmatch is much more available to white and or middle class populations. Therefore, people who are more likely to get identified through genetic genealogy are going to be white and or middle class. Again, this is a generalization, but it's something we're seeing proof of time and time again. We need to make it more accessible to sort of more minority communities. Of course, with her identification, Amelia's case is only half sold because we still don't know who is responsible for her death. Chances are this wasn't a targeted attack. She was just crossing the road and got knocked down and she died. The driver panicked and sped away. If they haven't been found in 20 years, they're likely not gonna come forward now unless their conscience just happens to get the better of them and they come forward. Hopefully it's weighed very heavily on them for all these years. I know I certainly couldn't live an unbothered life if that was me, but maybe some people can. The next identification is that of New Hope Jane Doe, who's been identified as 20-year-old Lisa Coburn Kessler from Jackson County, Georgia. Lisa was found by road workers in September 1990 on the side of Interstate 40 in Hillsborough, North Carolina. She'd been strangled, murdered just days before, but despite investigation, the authorities were unable to find her name or her killer. After the identification, Orange County Sheriff Charles Blackwood said to the News of Orange County, Throughout the decades, some of our finest investigators kept plugging away. When you can't close a case, it gets under your skin. You might set the file aside for a while, but you keep coming back to it, looking to see someone you didn't notice before, or hoping information gathered in the showing cases has relevance to your cold case. Investigators also monitor new techniques and technologies in the field, which eventually led to the breakthrough in Miss Kessler's case. It seems like a new investigator called Dylan Hendricks took over Jane Doe's case in June 2020, and he received substantial assistance from the State Bureau of Investigation in getting this one solved. After remaining unclaimed, this Jane Doe was rather controversially actually cremated and her ashes were scattered at sea, but luckily they did have the foresight at this time to keep behind some hair just in case technology ever caught up, and it did. 
After taking over this case, Hendrix sent a degraded hair fragment over to Astria Forensics for DNA extraction, and they were very soon able to return a DNA profile, at which point forensic genealogist Leslie Kaufman took over. She began identifying genetic family members and was able to connect with paternal cousins, at which point investigators began conducting interviews within the family. It's then they learned of Lisa, who no one in the family had heard from for at least 30 years. Suspecting that she was the person they were looking for, investigators requested DNA from a potential maternal relative, which provided all the information that they needed. New Hope Jane Doe was Lisa Coburn Kessler. And now they move on to the search for her killer. I don't know if they have any DNA evidence that may have come from the perpetrator here, I suspect that they do not, but most homicide victims are killed by people they knew, so that's as good a place to start here as any. Anyone with any information in this case is asked to contact the Orange County Sheriff's Office. I'll leave all their contact details in the description box down below. I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on this case and I hope I'll be giving you another update on this not too far in the future. In October 2022, the Lady in the Dunes, one of the most infamous doe cases from the USA, was finally identified as Ruth Marie Terry after over 48 years. I did cover that in an updates video at the time, so I'll link that down below if you want the full details. Ruth's body was found in July 1974 in the Race Point Sand Dunes of Provincetown, Massachusetts. It was thought that she died about two weeks beforehand and it was theorised that either she'd been murdered in her sleep or she knew her killer as there was very little sign of a struggle. Her cause of death was homicide by blunt force trauma and her hands and one of her forearms was missing from the body, presumably in an attempt to hide her identity, something which worked for many, many years. Or maybe it would stop the killer being identified if they thought that her identification would lead straight to them. Ruth was almost decapitated as well, likely from somebody with great strength trying to strangle her, and one side of her skull was completely crushed. This was a brutal, brutal murder. Whilst it was suspected at the time of her identification that the murderer may have been Ruth's husband, Guy Madolvin, this was not confirmed or denied by authorities until August of this year, when they finally confirmed it. The pair got married in 1973 or 1974, after which point they headed off travelling around the country, including stopping in Tennessee to see Ruth's family. However, in the summer of 1974, Madolvin returned from their trip alone, driving her car. When people asked after Ruth, he said that she died, which I suppose was not a lie. When Ruth vanished, her family really tried to look for her and her brother actually asked for Madalbin's help, but he didn't get very far. He was told a completely different story, that the couple had had a fight during the honeymoon, Ruth walked out and Madalbin never heard from her again. And Madalbin went on with life as normal in the aftermath of most likely murdering his wife. In 1946, he married again to Joellen May Loop in Pennsylvania and they divorced after 10 years. Two years later, in September 1958, he married Manzanita Eileen Ryan in Idaho. Manzanita had an 18-year-old daughter from previous marriage, Dolores Ann Mearns, and then on the 1st of April 1960, both women disappeared from Seattle, and Medalvin quickly became the prime suspect. He fled Seattle but was apprehended by the FBI and was charged with unlawful flight. But very soon after this, he married again in Washington to Evelyn Marie Emerson, and it seems like he was also facing larceny charges around this time as well for swindling the Emersons out of $10,000. 
1961, he was convicted of these charges and was sentenced to 15 years in prison, although the sentence was suspended less than a year later on the basis that he paid the money back that he stole. So he actually never ended up spending any time really in prison. This just seems to be a guy who was able to get away with so much despite it being pretty obvious to everyone that this wasn't a good man. Famous true crime writer Anne Rule wrote a whole section of a 2007 book, Smoke, Mirrors, Murder, trying to connect him to Manzanita and Dolores' disappearances after investigators found dismembered human body parts in his septic tank, but they were unable to prove that they were the women in question. Medalvin was never charged with anything in connection to this. He's also been strongly linked to other murders as well, being the prime suspect in the murder of 28-year-old Henry Lawrence Redbeard and the disappearance of his 17-year-old girlfriend, Barbara Jo Kelly, in Fortuna, California. Barbara went on a date with her boyfriend Red on June 17, 1950 and was never seen again, although Red's body was found with a gunshot wound to the back of the head shortly after. It was thought that Barbara was kidnapped by whoever killed Red. At this time, Moldavin, I've just realised I've been saying Moldalvin, haven't I? Moldalvin, there's no second L, it's Moldavin. He was living in California, working on KIEM radio, and the restaurant that Barbara worked in as a waitress also just happened to be owned by Moldavin's father-in-law at this time, Jerome Loops, and he himself worked there as a short order cook sometimes. Long story short, Guy Moldovin was a man with a long and intense history, a lot of which may well have been criminal, and in August 2023, he was identified as Ruth's killer. However, he died in 2002, so once again, he can't be interviewed or apprehended for the crimes, but investigators are pretty content that he is the one who killed her. Certainly, the circumstances around her death point in that direction. Our final update today comes in the form of a very old Jane Doe case from here in the UK, that of the so-named Nude in the Nettles, the name given by the media to an unknown female found under a bush near Sutton Bank in North Yorkshire. It was widely reported at the time that the bush was a nettle bush, hence the name, but in actuality it was a willow herb bush. Facts aren't going to stop the media coming up with a catchy headline though, are they? Nude in the Nettles Jane Doe has been unidentified since 1981 and I covered this case many years ago, but I was recently curious to see if anything new had happened and I was very happy to see there has been a recent push by the police to get some answers. In March 2022, police announced they were going to be revisiting this case, hoping that gaps in people's family trees could give them maybe some fresh leads. Once again, I have to point out that genetic genealogy is not something used here in the UK for myriad reasons. In 2012, they actually exhumed Jane Doe to get DNA, which was entered into the current police DNA database established in 1996. That means that anyone who's committed a crime in the UK from 96 onwards has their DNA on this database. However, there was no match to Jane Doe, meaning none of her relatives are criminals, or at least they're not criminals who have been caught. If there was a match, investigators would be able to conduct further DNA testing from there, but there was nothing. Last year, the North Yorkshire Police opened themselves up to questions about this case from the public, presumably to try and get as many people interested as they could. And one of the main questions that came in was, can commercial DNA services be used? And here is their answer verbatim. Some online companies offer DNA analysis for people who are interested in their family history. Customers have to opt in to share this information and the pool of data in the UK is relatively small. 
we're looking into whether commercial DNA matching services could help us identify the woman, but there's potentially other information out there that could help us. So it does sound like they haven't completely ruled out using some form of genetic genealogy, maybe, but from all my knowledge, they'll likely have to go overseas to do it, and I'm not convinced they'd have the funding to do so. The UK government only allows this in the coldest of cases, but I'm yet to come across one of those cases, an example of it being allowed. In January this year, it was reported that DNA samples had been taken from two Scottish men, Archie Moody and Jim Lawson, who both had long-standing missing female relatives. They came forward after a Crime Watch review in summer 2022. Archie's mum, Margaret Moody, went missing in the summer of 1977, and Jim's older sister, Penrill Sheriffs, went missing in 1958. She left behind two young sons with evidence suggesting that Jane Doe had two, maybe three children. Both of these women fitted the physical characteristics of Jane Doe, and whilst it was considered a one in a million chance that it could be either of them, it was worth testing their DNA. However, just one month later, it was confirmed that neither sample from either man matched. All three cases remain mysteries, nude in the nettles, Margaret Moody and Penwell Sheriffs. Only Penwell and Margaret's cases have no act investigation looking into what happened to them. They are completely cold. Investigators are hoping that the renewed investigation will bring people forward with the names of missing people so they can then DNA test members of the families and work that way. This is a slow process, but it's the only way we can really do the DNA testing here by specifically testing potential family members. Adam Harland, a former detective now with the North Yorkshire Police's cold case review team, is the one leading the review into Nude and the Nettles, and he said, if names are put forward, we're now in a position where we can apply this information to our DNA forensic records for this lady. Local knowledge may offer up this information. People's lives and allegiances move on, and time can tease out information that has been closely guarded in the past. Another possibility is someone who's researched the family tree might have found a gap or discovered a relative who disappeared from official records around 1979 to 1981 without any clear explanation. Police forces have used similar techniques for cold case investigations in the past and while they may seem unconventional, they can provide the missing piece to the jigsaw. I'd rather 200 names were put to us and 199 were wrong than nothing to work from at all. The one piece of information could be all we need now to solve a decades-old mystery. North Yorkshire Police have confirmed that Jane Doe was probably born between 1935 and 1940, making her between 39 and 44 when she died. It's impossible to determine an exact date of death because of the level of decomposition when she was found, but detectives believe she probably died in 1979. As I said before, she likely gave birth to two or three babies who would now be in their 60s if they survived. She was white with brown hair, around 5'4", and wore a size 4 shoe. She had several distinguishing features, including a mild upper spine malformation that may have made her hold her head at a very unusual angle. She had several missing teeth, and it's believed she may have been a smoker and a drinker. There is a wax model of her face that was sculpted in the 1980s, which investigators still believe is a reasonably accurate depiction of Jane Doe. If you have anyone of this description in your family tree who might be missing or you know of anyone, please email coldcasereviewunit at northyorkshire.police.uk with a summary of the information that you may have. 
And with that, that is all the new information I have to share with you today. As I said earlier on in the episode, if you ever hear of any updates and any case I've covered on my channel, then please feel free to either go and search up that video and leave a comment or just comment on my latest video to let me know. I do try my absolute hardest to sort of research and keep up to date with every single case that I cover, particularly ones I've covered in the last few years. But I'm only human. I've only got one set of eyes and one brain. So there are things I may miss sometimes. So it is so helpful when you guys sort of just try and help me keep updated. Thank you so much for tuning in today and I will see you in the next one. Bye guys.